So you were talking about you want to do some more soul fulfilling work. I feel like that's yeah. a thing that I feel like that's a thread that a lot of people deal with, like mm-hmm. being in that intersection of like, okay, I have this job or I have this practice, I have this career. It's it's good. I'm grateful for it. It's fulfilling. It's but I'm being called to do something else. You know, yes. and I'm wondering if maybe you could speak to that. Like, how do we answer that call? How do we pay attention to that thing when it's inside of us and it's saying, hey, can you nurture me? Can you pay attention to me? Yeah, I think that's a great question, right? Like, how do we get in touch with our true calling and our true purpose? And, you know, for me, it really started with I've done a lot of healing work on myself and I've been in therapy for a really long time and doing other healing practices. But for me, I did not find my true calling until really I decided to come out with my own story of lived experience with dissociative identity disorder. I felt like I needed to hide. Now, it's not to say that I did not feel that being a therapist was part of my calling. I do believe it was a huge calling for me. But the next step in the journey with writing, speaking, and educating really is around my story and trying to bring hope, inspiration, and love to other people to say, you can go through really difficult things and come out of it on the other side if you're willing to allow help, love, and support. Um, And I think most people get in touch with their true calling when they settle down and take a big deep breath and do a lot of mindfulness and just listen. And just really listen. I think that we are so distracted by things like social media or the news or our families. And we are often not living in our authentic selves because we are so distracted and trying to meet expectations. Sometimes those are expectations about ourselves, And sometimes those are expectations from society. And sometimes those are expectations that stem within our family of origin. And unless we choose to breathe and get quiet, and listen to the whisper within us, I don't know that we'd ever find it. A gentleman uh, direct messaged me yesterday and said, how do I find my purpose? And, you know, I have a brand new course that literally is talking about that. And it didn't feel authentic to me in that moment to say, hey, you should take my course. (laughs) What felt most authentic was to tell him my honest opinion. Breathe. Yeah. Close your eyes. Breathe. Mm-hmm. Laugh and repeat the process. Yes. You know, like I'm I'm a person who does meditation. I do yoga and meditation as one of my healing practices. And one of the things I wanted to ask you as, you know, a licensed psychotherapist is for your own journey and for your own life, what are some of the healing practices that you have turned to that have really helped you heal and, you know, step into your voice and step into yourself? Yeah. Oh, this is one of my favorite questions. And before I jump into that, I just have to tell you that I have your book right here next to me, Loving Yourself Properly, and how much it is helping me in this next stage of my journey. And one of the pages I have it open to is page 196. Everything in your life starts with you. If you want people to like or love the real you, then you have to commit to being your most authentic self. Be tactful and respect other people's boundaries, but don't diminish yourself just to keep others happy. We are off that. This life is beautiful and abundant, but you have to be the one to vibrate at the frequency so your life can match. Everything starts with you. So take charge and create the life you deserve. And oh my God, just chills with that. 
um, because that is where I am right now. You know, I have done so much work trying to help other people and I'm still going to help, but in a new way. Um, and some of the healing practices that led me to that point were not just therapy, although that was a start. And I'm blessed and grateful for the beautiful therapist I've had in my life to help create a safe space in order for me to broaden my horizons and start looking at other healing practices. So a few of the ones I've done are things like Reiki and energy healing work. I have a body practitioner um, who's really helped me feel safe in my body. So it's a little bit more in depth than just massage therapy, um, breathing, meditation, art therapy, and just art on my own. I love anything experiential because anything experiential that involves movement or creativity really helps us get in touch with our right side part of the brain, which is our emotion center part of the brain. Um, and so music, art, dance, um, all of those practices help us tap into our authentic self because we do need our left brain and we do need logic, but we can't logic our way to healing. Right. I think you would agree with that for sure. 100%. Yes. Wow. I'm so glad that you, you brought that in. Um, I'm a big advocate for, well, first of all, thank you for having the book and, you know, reading the book and bringing that, that piece. Cause it, when I read it, when you just read it, I was like, Okay, that's kind of good. I'm fired up right now, you know. So, <laughs> right. I liked also the part <laughs> that said, uh, "We're off that," because <laughs> I talk like that, you know. Like, yeah, when I'm talking to people, and you know, I'll tell them when I'm calling them up and inviting them to their highest self or their best self. I'm like, "Hey, you're off that other version. You're like, release that, let that go." Right. You know, and obviously, it's not always that easy, but you know, we need that invitation. There's something also you said in your opening comment that I, I wanted. I want to go back to. You talked about asking for help. Yeah. When you know you were going through different things and trying to heal. And I noticed, especially with men, being a man, the way that we're conditioned and uh socialized in this society, that one of the things that we don't do is we often don't ask for the help that we need until we are already in crisis mode or to or we've already had a big reaction, a breakdown, a meltdown and it's then it, it, it's a lot more repair that needs to be done. And so, you know, part of my mission um, and I try to keep my work for everyone, um, yeah. but just specifically knowing that I'm a man and knowing that other men look at me, I know that I'm also modeling, you know, way men can interact with different healing practices as well. So specifically on the topic of asking for help, you know, what's, how do we do that? How do we get out of our story and get out of ourselves and get out of, you know, some people are in a mode of, I can do this by myself. Mm -hmm. which you, which I'm sure you would agree is often a, a response to trauma to not being yes. able to depend on caregivers yes. or caretakers when you were younger. So like, how do we as adults get into a space of, okay, I need, I need to surrender and I need help. Like, how do we get to that space? Yeah, that's a great question. And to be, you know, fully transparent and honest, I was definitely one of those people. I did not ask people for help. I'm a survivor. And I, you know, told myself I couldn't rely on my mother or my father. So I'm going to do everything um, alone. And it nearly killed me. Um, you know, I had a pretty significant suicide attempt and ended up in the hospital trying to maintain this perfectly crafted image of a professional who had it all together. And I was too afraid to get the help that I needed at the time because of what it could potentially do to my career and the shame and the stigma around that. 
And so I think it's about the first step of trying to find who do you feel emotionally safe with and really evaluating that. And sometimes it's a therapist. Sometimes it's a trusted friend. Sometimes it's a 12-step support group. Sometimes it's a book. Like I think back to your book, Care Package, and how helpful that was to me very early on in part of my healing journey and how I then shared it with a family member and now it's making its way around the family, Um, you know? Um, And so I think it's about a willingness to say, I'm going to ask and somebody might be able to help me and they might not, but I'm not going to give up if the request is, if I ask and I have a request and there's a no, because somebody else or some other program might be able to help me. So I think it's about being able to like have that understanding that we can always ask for what we need. It doesn't mean that we'll always get it, but it doesn't mean that we should give up asking either. And I'll tell you, like you talk about like, you know, uh, for sure for men in our society, the message has been boys don't cry. Um, And it is difficult for men to ask for help for sure. Um, And I'm so glad that the universe has you to put this work out there because you're a role model for other men to say, hey, I can be a softer, gentler guy and lean into my energy and elevate my vibration. Um, I think you're giving such a gift to this world by doing that. Well, you know, let me be clear. Uh, I'm also, you know, a thug and very aggressive and very like when I'm in the gym, I'm, you know, grunting and yelling and playing basketball. I'm screaming at guys. But I feel like one of the things that I want to teach my son is that at least when it comes to masculinity, it's like, yes, be inside of the primal energy that flows through through you, you know, but find the right outlets for it. I go to the gun range and I shoot my guns, you know, I'm lifting weights around then. I'm, but then there's also the side of where can I find compassion in my life? You know, yes. where can I find a side of my mm-hmm. life where I don't have to compete, where I'm not in that primal energy, where I can be more connected to the, to the divine. And that's why I do the yoga. Yes. That's why I do journaling. Mm-hmm. That's why I go for a walk every day. Because for me, my whole identity and not my personal identity, but my belief system on healing and stepping into our highest power is stepping into wholeness. You know, yes. and so if I only choose to stay inside of my primal masculine energy, well, what are the consequences of that? I'm going to be enraged. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be aggressive at all times. And that's not to me, that's to, to be one way in all of these different life situations. You're honestly making yourself small, you know, because that's not the best way to, to parent. That's not the best way to go about your job. You know, it's like right. those primal energies have spaces where it's necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but then when I'm with kids, I'm not like screaming and grunting, mm-hmm. you know, it's more, it's a much softer, like, Hey, how are you doing today? What do you right. want some shit? You know? So it's yeah. like, you gotta lean to me. It's like, you gotta lean into the different energies and in your work, you talk about energies and you support people with energies. So, you know, tell me a little bit about your, just like your overall philosophy, um, you know, just <laughs> on healing and life, some of the things that you believe in. Yeah. Well, and I want to say too, you know, uh, I think it's about healing from trauma is really about learning how to embrace both the masculine and the feminine, right? Um, And actually, most people probably would be surprised by this, but I actually spent a great deal more in masculine energy than I did in feminine energy. And I'm working on actually cultivating a better connection with my feminine authentic self as I continue to uncover layers of healing. And I, I really think my philosophy around healing is this. We all have a story. We all have a past. We all have things in our past we don't feel good about. 
We've all treated people unkindly, and we've also treated people respectfully. And I think it is not until we are willing to really take accountability for who we are, the experiences that we went through, and also a process of self-forgiveness and self-love. So my philosophy is I think healing and wellness can happen for anyone, but it requires taking a massive inventory and a massive accountability about our paths, our pasts, our truths, and recreating what we hope to envision for the future. Because with trauma, there's a theory called trauma reenactment where things just keep repeating. So if we've been victim in the past, we are more likely to be victim again. And it is true. And it can also be prevented by a willingness to surrender to do the work necessary. And healing and wellness, as you know, you just described it for yourself, right, can take a lot of work and a lot of introspection and self-reflection. And some people don't want to do it. And the ones that do can create a beautiful new chapter. And I'll tell you, I'm still, you know, I... I'm very mindful now these days about energy, and I prefer to be around warm, soft, calming, inviting energy, one with transparency and vulnerability, because when my nervous system picks up on rage, rudeness, gossip, sarcasm, I don't feel well, and I start to retreat. And that can be with some of the people I love. You know, they're just having a day, and they might be, you know, rightfully expressing some anger, but I also need to be mindful of how that energy is impacting me me because I can listen. That doesn't mean I want to absorb. And I think trauma survivors and those who are people pleasers can really struggle with wanting everybody around them to be okay. And part of the healing journey is learning where you need to have boundaries around other people's energy, because it doesn't mean that you don't love them if you choose not to be around it, but you need to create some sacred space to have a reset. I like how you just said, I can listen, but I don't need to absorb. Yes. I feel like that's going to be something that's going to stay with me forever. I can listen, but I don't need to absorb. So <clears throat> I'm just thinking about the person who, you know, when people talk, I listen and I create all these like hypothetical situations in my head, you yeah, know, yeah. just empathetically <laughs> thinking about other people, you know? Yeah. And so I'm just thinking about the person who, you know, maybe they grew up with like alcoholic parents or maybe abusive parents. And so they've like developed these like codependent tendencies as a consequence and they end up absorbing, you know, everything, the responsibility, the emotion, like just everything in, yes. the, in their environment. How do people begin to just develop those boundaries where I can listen, but I don't have to absorb? Like, how do, how do we even start that process? Yeah, I think it's a willingness, again, to breathe, right? We're always going to come back to breathe. And I love there's a little skill. It's a dialectical behavior therapy skill, but not to get jargony. It's just called observing mindfully. Um, and I learned it really early on in my healing where you just observe the situation without responding. So it's like you're gathering data, but you're not jumping in and fixing it. You're just simply listening and observing and watching. And then you can make an informed choice about what you need to do for yourself in that situation. Sometimes it's have a verbal boundary. Sometimes it's to leave and exit the situation. Sometimes it's a reassessment of the entire relationship altogether right? And it's going to look different from person to person and from situation to situation. But that's one way to start the reflection process of simply just observing. A lot of times people want to jump in automatically with their 
feedback or what I call the hammer, the tool, right? I just want to fix this for somebody or rescue. Well, we're actually not in control of that. (laughs) We might want to, but we're not in control of rescuing anybody else, but we are responsible for taking care of our own thoughts, feelings, actions, behaviors, and how we show up in our relationships today. Maybe we should talk about boundaries a little bit. You support people with with boundaries in your practice. What are some of the common kind of the common themes that you see in your practice with, with boundaries? Sure. Uh, boundaries, 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 right? Um, and what I want to say is they create safety. Most people get afraid to set a boundary because they're so worried about the reaction on the other end. They might be walking on eggshells and they're afraid that if they assert themselves and have a limit, boundaries are about what we need to do for ourselves. Most people sometimes think about it as like, oh, I got to set a boundary with this person or that person. Actually, no, the boundary that you need to set is for yourself. Um, And so a lot of the common themes around boundaries I've seen over time and even experienced in my own life are people making a judgment or telling you what you should and shouldn't do with your career. It could be around your body, your body image and how you take care of your body, Um, food choices, um, health and wellness, what people should do in relationships, dating, sibling relationships, boundaries around money, sex, religion, spirituality. Um, and I always usually remind people to like, stay in your lane. You get to decide what's right for you. And when people start crossing over into other, each other, each other's lanes, they're boundary violating all over the place. Right. And some of that is old stuff from family of origins or society where we think we have the right to tell another person how they should and shouldn't do things. And that's just completely inappropriate. And I even say in my practice, when I work with clients, I'm not the therapist that's going to tell you what to do. I feel like that's wildly inappropriate. I will listen. I will empathize. I will maintain therapeutic neutrality, but I will never tell you what to do. I might make a recommendation if I think there might be something that's helpful, but ultimately I empower my clients to make the choices that are in the best interest of themselves. Yeah, I like that. I feel like a great teacher is a person who's going to hold this space for the lesson to, you know, come through the moment versus like, you know, as parents, your first, your natural inclination is like, don't do this or don't do that, you know, because in your head, you know, the right answer or, you know, the outcome, Mm -hmm. but like as a true teacher is like, okay, how do I create a space for this person to come to their own conclusion? Because that's what, it makes me think of that quote. What was it? Um, you give a man a fish, he eats for the day. You teach a man how to fish, he eats forever, you know? And it's like, it's such a, a corny thing, but it's true. Like it's mm-hmm. honestly true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, DID, the D- dissociative identity disorder. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about uh, <laughs> what it is, you know, from like a clinical perspective and then tell us about your personal journey? Yeah. Wow. You're the first one I maybe have let ask me a pretty deep question so far about my own uh, healing journey. So I'll do the best I can with maintaining my own boundaries. But how I kind of describe it, because most people, what do they know about it? They know what Hollywood has put out there and uh, or a textbook. And um, I, I like to say this, and it's coming in one of the pieces I wrote, but you will never understand me or anyone else with DID by simply reading a textbook or by watching a poorly inaccurately portrayed film. We are human beings who have undergone and experienced extreme trauma. I am a victim of um, being sex trafficked as a child. My father um, 
was involved in uh, really dangerous and unhealthy things. And unfortunately, I became a victim to that. And so what my brain did was basically take a lot of snapshots of that experience and packed them away like different puzzle pieces in my brain. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my late 30s that all of the pieces of the puzzle started to come together and I finally understood my story and who I was and everything I had gone through. But essentially, those different puzzle pieces of, of my experience um, created altered states, altered states of consciousness that show up as different what people refer to as parts or alters, each carrying their own name, characteristic, cognitive skill sets, um, likes dislikes, sexualities, and behaviors, and they are all a part of me. And so it sounds very strange and it sounds very unusual, but it actually was a brilliant way in order for me to survive everything that I had had to experience as a young child. Um, and unfortunately, there's been so much stigma around this disorder, and now we reframe it to dissociative identities versus disorder because it was a brilliant way to adapt to experiencing extreme trauma that my brain needed to compartmentalize the experience and shut it out and away from me. And it's a lot. It's a lot. It's difficult to talk about. Most people don't understand it. I'm trying to work on ways to provide the public with education around it while also protecting my own boundaries and my own sense of self in the process. Because Unfortunately, people will refer to it as fascinating or um, like so unusual. And I like to remind people I'm not fascinating. I'm a human being. And um, I would like people to start paying attention to the extreme trauma that's occurring right here in this country um, and other countries, too. Um, but, you know, things that are occurring that are leading people to develop DID, um, not be fascinated with the disorder. But let's have some compassion for what people have been through in order to survive. First, thank you for sharing um, the, the the testimony and your story and the deep emotions that come with it. Thank you for sharing it here first and you know, being willing to share. This is something that I for sure am ignorant to and not completely educated on. And I would like to ask further questions because I'm guessing that there's going to be other people listening that are like, I hope he goes further so I can learn more too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, respect your boundaries. If you don't want to answer, feel free. We can switch. You know, I, this is all about respecting your space first and foremost. I'm curious, does it feel like, does it feel like based on the environment, you'll almost kind of pick who you are based on the environment? Like, because you're like, oh, okay, I need to survive this environment. So I become this person or you're in this type of a different environment. You're like, mm, I become this person. Is it kind of like, like that? Like, tell me a little bit more about. Yeah, like, no, that's an interesting the person. You, yeah, go ahead. No, not necessarily. So, you know, they call DID a hidden diagnosis for a reason. And on average, it takes about seven years for somebody who's in the mental health system to get an accurate diagnosis. So it's not something that people readily see. And there's also plenty of survivors who don't actually ever enter therapy for it and are fully, you know, are able to function in their lives. So no, it's not like a chameleon thing where I can just like blend in with certain people, um, you know, based on how I'm feeling that day or anything. It's literally different parts of me that were developed to survive certain aspects of the trauma. 
Um, so, you know, it's not the switches, as they call it, switching from part to part um, is not something that the, uh, somebody would readily actually be able to observe or to notice. Um, and it will depend. There are survivors on all levels of this spectrum. OK, so we have, you know, fully, you know, there are a lot of let's, I don't like the word functional necessarily, but we have a lot of. I'll use it for the for a teaching moment. High functioning professionals living with a disorder like mine, and then we have unfortunately some people who are disabled as a result, and they're much lower functioning. But all people on the dissociative spectrum, the experience for each one of us really is different, and the switches are not always dramatic. In some cases, they can be. For me, it is not that way. Um, and so, you know, only the people really close to me have had what's called direct access to my parts or can observe the switching that takes place. Um, and, you know, um, so, yeah, it's not like I just get to choose, you know, who I want to be in the moment. Um, and with all of the healing under my belt, all my parts work together now. And so it's what's considered functional multiplicity. And I'm very integrative in that way. And I'm blessed for that. It took a lot of time in healing to be able to get to that point where it's called developing internal trust and system cooperation, meaning all my parts are on board. Um, but it it is exhausting and it does take a lot out of me at some at some points. Um, mm. And I am very skeptical about who I spend time with, um, not because of my disorder, but again, it comes down to energy. And, um, you know, they, there's this saying in the trauma recovery community that if you're a trauma survivor, you have a sixth sense and you can pick up on, you know, manipulation and things that are not authentic. So intuitively, you know, I'm guided to spend time with people that I know are going to treat me with respect and kindness. I 100% believe in the sixth sense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I went through trauma as well. Um, mine was physical, verbal, and, um, uh, in uh, psychological abuse mm. uh, to alcoholic parents. And so I feel like one of the consequences of that is obviously when I was a teenager, it was a lot of rage and fighting, you know, as fighting, um, you know, other boys in the neighborhood and obviously learn, eventually learn how to regulate my nervous system, how to process those big emotions. But into my adulthood, I noticed that the thing that happened is I could just almost sense uh, the things mm -hmm. that you're, you're naming, yeah. like this person's isn't just sarcastic. They're like attacking me with their sarcasm, you know, like right. I could sense the verbal abuse yes. uh, mm -hmm. even before it would happen, you know, and it would, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not saying that I'm glad I went through the trauma. I'm not glad I went through the trauma, but I'm glad that I learned from the trauma because it did help mm -hmm. me in my adult life yes. form clearer relationships, mm -hmm. clearer relationships on exactly what I needed, exactly what I didn't need and who I didn't want, you know, it, mm -hmm. it helped me in that way. And so um, what I'm curious to know is let's talk about, you know, green flags. How do people mm -hmm. like us who have been yes. through different traumatic stories and episodes, how do we identify like this person is good for me? This yes. person, you know, it, it, it's, it's a thing I think we need to talk about. You know, we always talk about trauma and red flags and avoid this person, boundaries, keep this person out. But right. for sure, because I believe in wholeness, we yes. have to talk about like, 
how do we bring the people in? How do we, you know, so yeah, maybe you could speak on that for us. Absolutely. And my heart is with you. I, you know, grew up with alcoholic parents as well. And you do, you learn how to navigate situations because you're, it's like walking into a minefield and you're wondering like, where is that going to go off? And so you become very hyper attuned and hyper aware of your surroundings and people. And you learn to read people really early on. And so I agree, right? It's like really, it's like you, you don't wish the trauma happened. And at the same time, after, you know, some time and healing, you can appreciate some of the things that it brought, like as a gift. I know that sounds unusual for some people when they're not there yet in their journey. But for me, yes, I've had a ridiculously challenging childhood and upbringing. And at the same time, I don't know that I would be able to do all the things I do today without having gone through that. Not that I would wish that upon anybody in, in the world, but um Yes, I think it's important to talk about the green flags. Actually, there's this woman who's the founder of An Infinite Mind in Florida. Um, she's another DID survivor, and she'll be in her 13th year of putting on a conference for survivors and the public. And she talks about, in healing, getting to this place of living life in the green. And so it just reminded me of that when you said that. Um, and it's about like- I like that. Try Yeah, right. It's awesome. And so every time I'm like walking around and I'm like, oh, my God, like I actually really am like living my life in the green now. It's so exciting. Before I was like living life in the red, like on the yeah, edge. It's such the a time. like that phrase is such a way to just like reclaim your identity and reclaim who you are in this present moment. Like I'm in the green, baby. You know, it's like you're yeah. claiming your, your highest self. I love it. OK, OK. Yeah. Um, she's an incredible woman. Her name is Jamie Pollock and she developed, you know, a nonprofit organization for other survivors with DID and truly blessed, grateful to know her. Um, so yeah. So paying attention to, again, I think it comes back to energy, like whose energy, if you breathe and you intuitively reflect, like, who do you feel good around? Who has your back? Who's supporting you? Not telling you what to do, you know? Um, and looking at like, you know, they say, I was reading this article and I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a minute. I was reading, I'm part of this women's group in Scottsdale that has been so healing for me. It's called Powerhouse Women, founded by Lindsay Schwartz in Scottsdale. And I'll tell you, I don't know Lindsay in terms of like, we haven't hung out and like, you know, uh, gone out for coffee or anything, but I've developed a really close relationship with her over text because I'm in part of her women's programs. And she is genuine and I don't trust people right away. It's even after all my years of healing, I have to feel people out before I spend time with them and get to know them. Um, and Lindsay ha is just kind and warm and loving. And I'll tell you where she really earned my trust. And I think this goes back to the green zone, right? It's I was supposed to go to a powerhouse event a few years ago in Scottsdale. She puts on this annual powerhouse women's event and I was unable to attend because my mother had just passed away. And I reached out to her, not even knowing her. I only had heard of her through a colleague who had invited me to go. I was actually going to support my colleague uh, who was speaking on body image. And I reached out to Lindsay directly and I said, I would never normally ask you for this, but my mom just passed away and I'm not able to attend the event. Do you think I could use my ticket for the following year? And she was like, of course. And she was offered her condolences and her sympathy. And I'll tell you that that exchange of humanness opened up a whole world for me and a level of trust and respect to be able to lean in and really get to know these other women in this community. And I never really trusted women before. My clients are a different story. I adore my clients. But on a personal level, women to me were always, I was skeptical. Now, if we go back to my childhood, my mom, you know, couldn't protect me. She didn't mm. protect me due to her own issues and things that she had going on. But it put 
a negative view of women right within me to say, you know, you just view the world in a different way before you're healed. Um, And I think that what I'm sharing about powerhouse in my experience with Lindsay is this sense that I could trust myself to feel her genuineness. And I was able to share with her, I'm like, listen, like I have parts of me that absolutely trust you. And I have still some that are still skeptical. And she was like, okay, like, you know, we can, you know, like basically her and I, I'm able to her for her to hear that, hold that and respect that and not give me a hard time about that. You know, I think she's probably going to end up being a very important person in my life in ways that I don't even know yet. Wow. And so I think those green zones is like checking in intuitively. How does this make me feel? Does this support my me raising my vibration? Does it feel warm, inviting, and safe? Or am I feeling like, you know, uncomfortable, uneasy? And is the uneasiness fear? Is it reality-based or is it old fear coming up? Um, and then like granting yourself time and permission that you don't have to trust people right away. Trust is not all or nothing. And that you can start to feel things out, whether it's people or new hobbies or new activities that you're doing by simply observing and gathering the data about the energy in which you are surrounded. Because we know if we listen, you and I am sure can both agree, we know when we're in a situation we shouldn't be in, right? Because it's like it swoops you up and you're in it and you're like, you know, and then you breathe and then you have to backpedal and figure out how can you reset the nervous system and try again. Mm-hmm. And I also think part of that living life in the green is hanging on to hope, hanging on to the belief that you are deserving, that you deserve better and to not beat yourself up and get sucked down in a shame spiral, which then prevents you from leaning in again to more people or activities or opportunity. You made me think about growing up as a person who you know, when I was a teenager, you know, my instant response was, okay, if this person is dangerous to me, I'm going to fight them. Mm-hmm. And that was from years of not being able to fight, literally not being able to defend myself from the abuse mm-hmm. in my home. And so, you know, when I went through puberty and my body started maturing, I started lifting weights, I started training, then I was like, okay, I can defend myself now. So then there was like this, these like five-year period, which was high school in the very beginning of college, where if someone attacked me, I could defend myself, right? So it was like me reclaiming myself through strength. And then obviously you learn to integrate the trauma and the pain because you just can't be in the world fighting people. Nope. <laughs> you just definitely can't do can't. it. It's, nope. it's, it's definitely a, a necessary skill to learn, to learn how to defend yourself, especially, you know, if you end up having kids one day, you, there was going to, you know, your kids can't defend themselves. So it's one of those things that for me, I'm glad that I've learned how to defend myself. Um, but again, you can't just be attacking people in the real world. It just, right. it just That's just not a good way to live. And so one of the things that I recognize is when I'm going out with people and hanging out with people and you're in these different environments and different situations, you go to a bar, you go to a club, people are drinking and things happen, right? Things happen. You see fights happen. And one of the things that I got really good at was determining, okay, if I hang out with this person, they will never fight anybody. They will not get in a fight. People won't try to fight them. I realized that there was a certain energy with the people yes. who fought. The people mm-hmm. who I was hanging around, I was hanging around people who love to fight, who love to argue, who love the drama. 
who loved pain, who love inflicting pain on others, and they love mm. the pain happening to them. Mm-hmm. And then once I realized, like, you know what? I'm not hanging out with those people anymore. Right. Then I started choosing people who said, you know what? Let's let's find a way to talk about this. Is there a way yes. we can talk about the problem? People who would take personal accountability. You know what? My bad. I'm sorry. That was my fault. I didn't mean to mm-hmm. step on you. I didn't mean to look at your girl as long as I was looking at her. You know, people who are more accountable and more empathetic. Then I started leaning towards them. As my as my healing began, I started leaning more towards those people and aligning mm-hmm. more with them. And then as a consequence of that, I don't get in any fights. I don't have any problems. Right. Like, I'm now entering spaces that are safe. And what yes. I noticed happened is when I enter spaces that were unsafe, because the people I was with at the time were now safe, I would I would feel comfortable communicating with them. Like, hey, I think we should leave. I, I think we should get out of here. This this isn't a good environment. Mm-hmm. And every single time they'd be like, all right, let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Respecting your boundaries, right? You're asserting yourself, having a limit, respecting your boundaries. You know, what you're saying reminds me of kind of what I learned in the 12 step community, right? It's like when you get healthy from something, whether it's alcohol, drugs, rage, right? Because it's all process oriented stuff. And we do Mm -hmm. need to create time and space to release healthy anger, right? We don't want to be destructive with it against ourselves or someone else, but we have to acknowledge anger and pain and find a healthy release for it. And then when we do get healthy, we do need to reassess and reevaluate where we're spending our time and energy and with whom. And in the recovery community, you know, they talk about you got to change people, places, and things. The healthier you get, that's always going to be in evaluation because what what what's was working or really not working right before in a, in a state of unhealth can't mm-hmm. come with you to the next chapter, you know, and it's, and it's always uh, there's a little bit of a resistance pull sometimes. Cause just based on homeostasis, it's an old right. school term that you just go back to the way that things were, but you can actually break through that, but it does require a constant reevaluation and reassessment and your body will tell you, Right. Just like when you Mm -hmm. if you were out with friends, your body is going to let you know this is not a good place to be or we need to exit or got wrapped up with the wrong people again. Um, And that's, you know, can be anywhere personally, professionally, all those all those arenas all need reevaluation. And a big part of it, too, is listening to like you you said at the very beginning is really listening to your voice. You know, like what do you want? What do you really want? Do you genuinely want to be in the repeating cycle of these super dramatic, uh, you know, just toxic, low vibrational, energetic situations? Now, in some situations, you're not choosing them. You know, for example, like we're naming situations when you're a kid and your caregivers are creating them. You're not choosing that. You know, but there's this point where, okay, you're not with the parents anymore. You're, right. you're on your own. Yes. And are you still choosing those patterns? And obviously I have compassion for people who may be choosing it, but it, I just want people to listen to their voice. It's like, what do you really yes. want? Do you really, really want that? You probably don't want that, you know? And so what do you want? What do you want? I want people to get clear on what you want, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's, whether it's business, relational, personal, interpersonal. I just want people to get really clear on what you want because- the consequence of getting clear on what you want is you will then try to align your life with what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't get clear on that, then you're just going to stay in the old patterns yes. because you haven't got, you haven't got that clarity. You haven't got that definition, um, mm-hmm. that hope, like you mentioned, you talked about hope actually on your, on your page. I, I saw a thing on hope that I had wrote down. Let me see if I can find it in my notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right here. You said, um, 
Okay, I'll just read the question for you. It says, I'm a strong advocate for thinking positive and hope. You know, of course, we know that spiritual bypassing is a thing, and I don't believe in using spiritual uh, psychological terms to skip over the invitation to heal. I'm wondering what your perspective is on that that gray area there. You know, how does a person stay positive when they're going through solid or intense emotions? You know, and sometimes feeling positive or optimistic may not be available to them. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm wondering um, how we can do this dance of the gray area and how we should approach it from, you know, from your perspective. Yeah, I think that's great, you know, because, I, you know, although I, I always tell people like I'm all about like hope, rainbows and butterflies, but I also understand that that's not realistic 24 seven. Right. And in the depths of my darkest despair, I had to hold on to the hope that other people had for me. So, you know, there was a time where I lost hope, but my husband had a lot of hope um, and, you know, hanging on to his hope, you know, gave me a little bit of hope. But I think what you're talking about is real. You know, people, when they're in that darkness and when those cycles are repeating and they're swallowed up by chaos, confusion and dysfunction all around them, it is sometimes hard to see the light. And so I often remind people that sometimes we have to trust and hold the hope that other people have for us when we can't see it ourselves. And sometimes I'll tell my clients, like, I wouldn't do what I do for a living if I didn't believe that people could get better and people could create a different life for themselves. So I always say, when you lose hope, you can borrow some of mine um, because I'll hold hope in my heart forever for other people, you know? And so I think it's about a surrendering to whether it's a higher power, a spiritual thing, nature, a friend, a family member. I'm certain that even in the darkest of despair, there are people around other people who are willing to hold that space and that hope. Um, we just have to be able to let them through the door, mm -hmm. right? Because how many times have we all put up walls in our own feelings of shame when there's people right on the other side of that door that we don't want to ask for help for, or we don't want to gain their support or whatever it is, go to that 12 step meeting, go to that church, um, read an energy book, listen to a podcast. Um, I think it's about making choices. So like you said, when we're children, we don't have a choice, but as adults we do. And so it's about looking at, there's three stages kind of of trauma recovery, right? Or ways to think about it, victim, survivor, and thriving. We have to go back and acknowledge that we were a victim to circumstance, but we don't want to stay in victim posture, which is a poor me, this happened to me, life's never going to get better. Because if we stay there, we won't get better. So we have to acknowledge that we've been a victim. We have to look at all the ways in which we chose to survive. Um, good, bad, and indifferent. It's not about judgment. It just is what it is. Survival, you know, tactics that needed to happen in order to navigate that experience and then take accountability for that. If there's some unhealth there and then move over to thriving, which does require a reassessment of people, places, things, energy, healing, whatever it might be to help keep moving us towards better health. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, in the depths of darkness, it's about letting uh, the hope in from other outlets if you're struggling to find it yourself. I love that. You changed my entire perspective of hope. You know, I've always had this idea that, you know, I need to be the one generating the hope. But you said, no, you can borrow hope from other people. It's almost yeah. like it's a currency. So that just changed my entire perspective. It's like, hey, you know what, Sylvester, you probably will lose hope again at some point in your life. And yeah. guess what? That's OK, because mm -hmm. people around you have plenty of hope. You can you can borrow it from someone. You you know, the resources you name, podcasts, a book, a movie, a dance, a song. Yeah. You, know, you can find that hope. I, I think that's why 
we all have those artists or you know who make sad music and we're like oh we love that so much because oh my god when, totally when we were sad that sad music got us through it gave us hope you know Florence, so. I always say Florence and the Machine. She's my absolute favorite. I mean, I have a lot of favorites, but like, um, well, DMX and Eminem included, I have a plethora of music interests. But, um, you know, Florence and the Machine um, was probably one of my greatest therapists. Her music just really speaks to my soul. Um, and when I was a young girl, DMX was on repeat uh, because his songs were pretty, pretty deep and he got into prayer. Um, and I think it's about, you know, finding any healing tool that's possible uh, yeah. because it it is out there and there's so many free resources too. And people sometimes lose sight of that when, right. when they're overwhelmed, right. there's a little skill called opposite actions kind of speaks to our energy healing stuff that we've been talking about, but it's like, if you're feeling really in darkness and despair, choose something that may offset the mood. Maybe it's mm. a funny comedy, right? It's not going to take the pain away, but it can help shift that energy and shift that perspective. So you're not swimming in it and drowning in it. Right. That brings more balance. You know, that brings more balance. Give me a your ideal concert. Who is going to open? Who will be the middle <laughs> act and who will be the closer? Oh, man. Ideal. It concert. could be dead or alive. It could be any era. Just your for you personally, your ideal concert. Oh, man. Um, Biggie Smalls, for sure. Okay. Um, you know, there's a song Juicy that I used to sing over and over again um, as, a, as a girl. Let's see, Biggie Smalls, Mary J. Blige, DMX, and somewhere Florence and the Machine. I know she's not in the same genre there, but, um, and I do have to say, I like Madonna's music. You know, as a little girl in the 80s, Madonna was kind of an outlet for me. Um, so yeah, some some combo of all of them. I don't know. That'd be a great concert. That'd be a great, <laughs> great concert. I feel like DMX would have to go last because once he gets out there and he's barking and he's praying and he's crying, like you can't go after him. Like you got to end with DMX, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then my last question for today is you get the best chef in the world. Uh, it could be Gordon Ramsay. It could be you, whoever. The best chef in the world is making you a meal. Okay. So you get an appetizer, your main course, and a dessert. What does that meal look like? Oh, my God. An appetizer? Now you've got me thinking about food. I can think about life as an appetizer, <laughs> main course, and a dessert. Food is healing, too. So we got to always yeah, talk right? about good food. Um, an appetizer. Shrimp cocktail. Uh, a filet with asparagus. Oh, so and good. peanut butter pie with whipped cream for dessert and coffee always cannot live without my coffee. Oh, so you're one of the people you get coffee with your dessert. Yeah, I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. Will you get decaf or? Nope. Regular. <laughs> so you can drink coffee at night and still go to sleep? I can. Yeah. Are you one of those people who sleeps on airplanes as well? I do. Yes. I literally envy you because I don't know how to sleep on an airplane. And mm -hmm. when coffee past like 4 p.m. for me is like a disaster. Uh -huh. It's like, no, AirPods, I'll be up. On the, on the plane, AirPods and calming music. Mm. And I like to uh, color on the plane too. Those adult coloring books with like the mandalas and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And always, I always bring, I come very equipped when I travel and I always bring my own little, uh, like fleece blanket. You know, they used to give those out on the plane. They don't anymore, but my own little uh, fleece blanket and then I'm out. <laughs> yeah, because it gets cold. They pump that AC. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like totally. Freezing on the plane. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Before we wrap up too, I wanted to say something about page 103, your mood board for a person who allows themselves to be seen. The following, they all spoke to me, but I highlighted these. The world is here for me. I accept me for who I am. I am a human and I don't have to be perfect. I am worthy of relationship that have love and trust. I am different from my family and that is okay. I am able to find things that I love about them while accepting myself fully. And I feel like, you know, reading that really speaks to me, but I also think there's so many people that need those reminders. That is a very humbling moment for me personally, for you to read from the book, for you to be using the book. And I just want you to know that I'm very grateful, like very, very grateful for it. Well, you know, thank you. I, it makes me think about, you know, so many people reach out to me and they ask me how to start, you know, like, mm -hmm. how do I start doing this thing that I want to do? I want to write books or screenplays or, you know, I want to start a, a men's group, start a baseball team. And I always tell them, you know, follow your heart, like listen to yes. that voice, like do what you have to do. When I first started, I would have never imagined, like if you would have told me, Sylvester, in 10 years, you will have, you know, psychotherapists using your work, not only for themselves, but for their clients. I would have said, oh, you're lying. You're <laughs> lying. I, I would have told, you know, I'd be like, yeah, you're lying. You well, know? you know, what's so funny, Sylvester, is I honestly like was so honored that you reached out to me because I actually was going to contact you a few years ago to say, I'm a local therapist and I have read your care package book and I refer clients to it. And I was going to ask you if we could meet and get together. And I never did because I'm like, oh, he's such a busy guy. Like, what's he going to want to talk to a, you know, a psychotherapist in Scottsdale about? Um, so I honestly feel like part of today was sort of manifested in some way because, you know, I had the love for that and put that out into the universe um, and I was heard loud yep, and clear. So um, I love your books. I love the work that you're doing. It's so powerful. And I aspire to be a writer like you. Like if I could capture my words and the profound statements that you do, I would be so excited because I can be very verbose and write and write and write, but you capture such pivotal moments and messages for people. And it's such a gift. So I hope you keep writing. I received that. Because there's so it is helping so many people far beyond what you can see. How can I how can I support you and your endeavors here to, you know, jump into more writing and, and just, you know, getting better with, with your work? How can I help you? I think we stay in touch. And honestly, just giving me this opportunity today to talk a, a little bit about um, the work that I'm doing and um, letting me share my perspective on healing and wellness um, is, is such a gift. I'm so grateful. Yes. Thank you. I will tell you this, that so now for me personally, I'm a nerd. So like, I love psychology. I love learning about the brain. <laughs> the, the terms don't bother me at all. I'm like, yes, more terms, more terms. Like, like, it, that, like I like it, you know, so me personally, I'm good. But one of the things that you do well is you start speaking about what's happening and then you name the term and then you break down the term. So from what I've understood, that really helps people as far as like their comprehension of what's happening. Because sometimes people in academia will just say the term. Yes. And there's this thing called uh, information bias where we assume that people know what we know. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do is I try no matter who I'm talking to. I will always try to break down what I'm saying. Even if I know like this person's smarter than me, they know this subject more than me, I'll still try to break it down. 
you know, and give them the opportunity just to say, oh, I already know that. Then I'm like, OK, cool. You know that already. Cool. I don't have to break it down. You know, so I just think as a as a writer, that's one of the, the most important skills is to make sure that you're aware of like information bias, you know, to just consistently be breaking things down. Because when you're speaking to other people in academia, then they already know what you know. So it's like, oh, I'll just throw this term out. It's whatever. Right. But the common person doesn't like, for example, DID, I didn't know that term. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why I asked you, like, hey, can you can you break this down for me? Can you tell me what this is? You know, yeah, most most people, we don't know terms. We want it to be broken down. So you do that well now. So I would like to see my here's my invitation and challenge to you. I would like to see. I saw that you you started writing for psychology today. When's your when's your next piece coming out? Well, I just wrote the piece. They're in the process of setting up my account for me. So I just wrote a piece on the healing power of community and connection. And so as soon as I'm able to post it, that's the first one that's going up. Like have they like they have it. You sent it to them already. It's just like in queue. They have all of my they have all of my stuff to get my account ready. And then I okay. believe I go in and I upload my blog and then they edit. I think they edit live or something like that. I'm still learning all okay. about it. <laughs> when you when you get that piece out send it to me like right away as soon as you get it and i know it's going to be great already but i will give you like the writer's eye on it if you want if you want that. if you want that type of support like i can yes do i do i would be okay. so honored and i welcome yes. any and all feedback um i would be honored to receive your feedback so thank you for your willingness and i accept the challenge i think that that's great and something that i need to learn to do is to break down you know cuz i'm so used to being in the clinical mode right mm-hmm. so i think it will be great for me to continue to practice that with my writing and um have other people take a look at things so that I can be sure that the messages that I'm trying to relay can make sense and be heard by the people that I'm trying to reach. Oh, and another thing you do really good from a writing perspective uh, is you have stories involved with what you're doing. The human brain, we love stories, which is why we're obsessed Mm -hmm. with celebrities, because we know all these celebrity stories. You know, Mm -hmm. story is the way to move the brain, you know, and so I love how you bring in different stories with the terms. So when you're writing, that will help a lot. You know, like, you, like for example, like in the Loving Yourself Properly book, I use a summer story, which was one of my favorite stories because it was, honestly, it was, the way I tried to go about it was, there was the event that happened in the summer uh, of me talking to my friend Summer. Her, her name, her actual real name was Amanda, but I changed her, her name to Summer in the book just mm-hmm. to keep keep it like summer story. So then when you uh-huh. read the book, there's like two ways to look at it. It's like, this is either a story that happened in the summer or it's a story that happened to a girl named Summer. You know, so <laughs> that, yeah. So, you know, story is what moves, what moves tra- uh, transformation. So. Well, and I love that. And just to say that one of my long-term therapists who I love and adore completely with my whole heart, her first name is Summer. So how ironic to just hear that right now in this moment, because <laughs> she really helped me find my voice. Last thing, any any invitation that you feel called to give right now to our listener? I think if you're listening right now, I just want you to know that I believe in you and I hold hope in my heart and to please remember to borrow the hope around you when you're struggling to see it for yourself and whatever action step that you can take to elevate your energy and your vibration that's positive and uplifting and ask yourself the question, 
before you do something, is this supporting my wellness or taking me a step away from my wellness? And if it's supporting your wellness and it's healthy, inviting, warm, calming, and safe, I invite you to give it a try because we won't know any different until we give ourselves permission to explore.